Good afternoon, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5, KPL 232-1542. If you want to be part of the conversation, you can also send a message through the KPL app chat, that little chat button up there in the top corner of the app. You can get that, open it up, uh, and send a message to me. Just hit general, uh, I think it's general discussion. Yeah, general message. And you can send a message to me. I read all those during the show when they come in. Shout out to T-Don for reaching out yesterday during the show toward the end. Yes, I know that I have some of the best Christmas bumpers out there. You'll hear more of them today. I wish I had just the way that the time off needed to be taken. You guys would have heard some more Christmas bumpers. I've got a lot that I have just out there that I want to put onto the list. But you'll hear some good ones today. Uh, Anyway, like I said, 232-1542. General message if you want to visit through the app chat. It is... The Friday before Christmas. And as the song goes, it's the most wonderful time of the year. In fact, I think the last forecast I saw, I may be wrong on that, but like a 2% chance of wintry precipitation of some sort on Christmas Day. What a Christmas miracle that would be. I like how chilly it is because it's a clear, sunny sky, and so it's just nice and cold without it being windy and like miserable. If it were cloudy and windy and miserable, I would not have walked out to my car this more, uh, today to come up to the station. I would have said, figure out some best stuff to throw on. But I wanted to be with you all today because I missed most of this week. And, and really, to be honest, I'm an addict for this stuff. Uh, you know, I was, I was, Moon was coming through after, after filling in for, for Dan Bongino earlier. Uh, and he, he, I'm, I'm filling in for him next Friday. So he said, you still filling in Friday? I said, absolutely. He said, are you going to do your show after that? I said, absolutely. Y'all might be tired of hearing me, you know, after, you know, going into my fourth hour of the day. I mean, there'll be a three-hour gap in between for, you know, Bongino's show, but three hours of me on moon, then me coming back in for a fourth hour in the afternoon. Y'all might be tired of me. I, I'm addicted to it. I like being on the air. I like talking to y'all. I like having the conversations that we have. Uh, so, you know, could have taken the whole week off, decided not to. I wanted to be here, especially going into the Christmas weekend. And I want to start today. I want to start today with a, a little bit of history. One of the things that we're kind of told these days is you know, it's a popular meme on the Internet about, you know, how there's no evidence that Jesus was born on December 25th, that this is all part of this uh, co-opting of a pagan holiday, this winter festival, whatever you want to call it, and that Christians just kind of arbitrarily decided that to to take over this pagan holiday and try to bring the pagan worshipers to Jesus to make the the comparisons between uh, the the deities they believed in and the, the Son of God. And... To look at the history of it, what a lot of people don't realize is that those theories only really became popular around the 18th century. And this is once comparative religion started kind of kicking in and and scholars and all these people were were talking about uh, the different religions, started studying them, and they kind of came to this conclusion. But actually... There is theological evidence, not saying that Jesus was born on December 25th, but there is theological evidence as to why the church picked that that is unrelated to it. And this is something that genuinely fascinates me. 
if you go back to the earliest days of the Christian church, Christmas, although not initially celebrated by the church, actually had been commemorated by the church well before the Feast of the Unconquered Sons creation. You know, the Feast of the Unconquered Sons, Sol Invictus, this is one of those pagan holidays that everybody says that Christianity co-opted for Christmas. But Christmas was being celebrated before that feast, the Feast of the Unconquered Sons creation. In fact, there's some historical evidence to suggest that the Roman Emperor Aurelian instituted Saul Invictus on December 25th to combat the growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire and the belief of Christianity that Jesus was born on December 25th. So where does December 25th come from? Let's go back a bit. In Egypt, less than 300 years after Christ's death, some Christians celebrated his birth in the spring. The Biblical Archaeology Society noted that the earliest references to Christmas come around 200 AD at a time when Christians were not incorporating other religious traditions into their own. They, Christianity didn't start doing that until later. By 300 AD, many Christians were celebrating Jesus' birth around December 25th. Within 100 years, Christmas was on the calendar record for the church. Christians looked at December because the early church was far more interested in Jesus' death. His death and resurrection are what matter to the gospel. And so the date of Jesus' death is what everyone focused on in the church. In order to say that Jesus didn't exist, you've got to ignore, you've got to write a lot of people out of history. You've got to write out the 12 apostles. You've got to write out Polycarp and Ignatius. You've got to write out Clement. You've got to write out a bunch of people that we know historically exist, and a lot of early historians who existed, who acknowledged that this guy named Jesus from a place called Nazareth was the guy who set in motion the biggest religious movement in the world. Around 200 AD, according to Andrew McGowan at the Biblical Archaeological Society, around 200 AD, Tertullian of Carthage reported the calculation that the 14th of Nisan in the year Jesus died was the equivalent of March 25th in the Roman calendar. That would be the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, the math there is rather simple. Nine months later would be December 25th. Now, there is an early Jewish belief that carried over into the early Christian belief that martyrs died on the day they were conceived. So if, if Jesus died on March 25th, then according to this religious belief, he was also conceived on March 25th. Nine months later would put Jesus' birth at December 25th. No, Siri, I will not. Sorry. Anyway, so that is part of the historical basis for why December 25th 
is Christmas, is celebrated as the day of Christ's birth. It doesn't really have anything to do with the pagan holiday thing. Now, there's also some evidence from the Bible. It's not quite as accurate, but it still kind of lends credence to this idea that Jesus was probably born around this time. Luke chapter 1 tells us that Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was in the priestly division of, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, Abijah. Based on the calculation of this and the division of priests in the temple in 70 AD, when the temple fell, a number of church historians presumed Zacharias would have been in the temple in late September or early October. Later historians, however, speculated it actually would have been in June. The Gospel of Luke says, When Zacharias left the temple, his wife conceived. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to us to God, was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph in the house of David, according to Luke. Six months after Zacharias left the temple would be March as Mary's time of conception. Fast forward nine months, and again you find yourself in December. The very earliest fathers of the church settled on March 25th as Christ's death, and following that religious belief that martyr, that prophets died on the day they were conceived, nine months from that would be December 25th. If March 25th was settled on as Christ's death and believing fully that Christ's death would occur on the anniversary of his conception, the early church reinforced its belief well before there is any written accusation or evidence of the church incorporating Saturnalia, Sol Invictus, or any other pagan holiday into its celebrations. It's also important to note, however, that most scholars reject setting Christ's birth to Zacharias' temple of service because of problems related to really knowing when he was there. But based on that earlier theory, it may coincide, and that lends a little more credence to it. But it doesn't matter except to people who wish to disprove that there's anything really significant or special about December 25th and, frankly, try to disprove the importance of the birth of Christ and try to push society to be a little more secular each and, with each and every day. I'm not an evangelical. I'm not somebody who goes, I'm not turning this into a sermon or anything, but as somebody who likes history, who studies history, this to me is fascinating. Because as much as so many people have tried to disprove the existence of Jesus, the importance of Jesus, the revolution that was the birth of Christianity into the world, the fact of the matter is there is a whole lot of evidence that shows this was a revolutionary moment. And that, while the most important day in history, because of what it set in motion, was the death of Christ, which again estimated to be March 25th, the death of Christ doesn't come without the birth of Christ. And it's the birth of Christ that sets 
everything into motion from the time that Jesus lived to the day he died to what came after in the founding of his church afterwards. And whether you're a Christian, whether you're Catholic, Protestant, whatever, whether you're atheist, whether you're some other religion, historically, you can't argue that the birth and death of Christ was not some sort of major revolutionary point in history. It is historical fact that without those events, nothing about the world as we know it today would be possible. So that is a little history lesson going into the Christmas weekend. I find this kind of thing fascinating. You may not. I don't know. All right, but for right now, let's go ahead and take a break here on the Joe Cunningham Show. When we come back, some more thoughts, news of the day, things like that, all here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542. If you want to be part of the conversation, you can also send a message through the KPL app chat. Uh, a couple messages have come through. We're going to get to those in the second half of the show, but I want to play a clip real quick. So the uh, in the last half hour, so a little bit longer ago than that, uh, the omnibus bill passed the House. So it passed the Senate, passed the House, it goes to Joe Biden. $1.7 trillion in a manufactured crisis that Congress let build up so they could pass this just insanely, insanely irresponsible bill. I want to play this clip from uh, Representative Chip Roy of Texas. Thank you, Speaker. I thank the gentleman from Pennsylvania. And I can't help but be amused that the gentleman from Massachusetts says that we refuse to come to the table. As if the gentlelady who will soon be the chairwoman of appropriations, Ms. Granger, my colleague from Texas, doesn't want to sit at the table with colleagues on either side of the aisle to come to consensus about how to spend taxpayer dollars, or better stated, how to borrow money we don't have. As if that's actually true. What table is the gentleman referring to? What table does he want us to come sit down and negotiate? It's not this table. I don't have the power to offer an amendment on the floor of the House of Representatives, despite being elected by 750,000 Texans. I don't have the ability or the right to be able to stand up for them and have a debate on the floor of this chamber. Everything the American people is watching right now is a complete sham. It's a fraud. A fraud being perpetrated on the American people right before their eyes, right as we head into Christmas, sitting here on the 23rd of December, when 240, what, six years ago, those boys crossed the Delaware. We were dealing with Valley Forge, or the boys in 1944 sitting in foxholes in Bastogne over Christmas. And we had 18 Republicans who joined with Democrats in the Senate get on their fancy planes and go home, and we're sitting here trying to do the work of the people not spend money we don't have, not drive up more inflation, not have 7,500 earmarks for $16 billion for pet leftist projects across this country. And he's absolutely right. This whole thing has been a sham. It has been an actual fraud. There is no reason to pack so many pet projects, so much irresponsible spending, into a massive bill like this, 
and claim that the that the work of the people is finished. It's not. We already have a financial crisis in this country. And now nine Republicans in the House, Representatives John Katko of New York, Chris Jacobs of New York, Liz Cheney, allegedly a Republican of Wyoming, Adam Kinzinger, allegedly a Republican of Illinois, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Fred Upton of Michigan, Rodney Davis of Illinois, Jamie uh, Butler of Washington, and Steve Womack of Arkansas all supported that bill. All supported a bill that would do nothing more than spend money we don't have and spend a lot of it on pet projects that do not serve the will of the people. At some point, somebody has to get into power and do the responsible thing and stop with omnibus bills and just put through a series of bills that funds the things that are absolutely essential to fund without putting in earmarks and pet projects. Because otherwise, we're spiraling out of control. You guys, we're going to take a break. We'll be back here shortly on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. Thrilled to be with you guys, taking you into the Christmas weekend. And I can't really, you know, escape the show. I did did some news in the last segment, going to do some here. Um, as we get prepared for the new year, it is important for you guys to know what is coming up. And part of that is this big shift in the media narrative with regard to our vice president. In the past day or so, there have been at least two pieces that have come out that have been absolute fluff pieces trying to build up Kamala Harris's year, her time as vice president, all attempting to kind of shore up her bona fides ahead of 2024. It's still highly questionable whether or not Joe Biden's actually going to run in 2024. His public appearances are getting worse. He is stuttering and stumbling a lot more, and it's not just a stutter. It is actual brain hiccups that that kind of seem like a deeper problem than just a stuttering issue. Um, he he is very old, and there are some cognitive issues that are very visible. Democrats are privately worried. Some are publicly worried. And there are several Democrats and folks in the media who think now is the time to go ahead and look for a successor. So who are the options? Well, there's Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, and Gavin Newsom. Newsom has already said he's not going to run if Joe Biden runs. He is all in on supporting Joe Biden in 2024. He's not going to challenge him. The same cannot be said if Biden decides not to run. Biden did kind of hint at he was going into the holiday break to kind of talk it over with his family, but he's a very stubborn guy. He could very well be making that play to go ahead and run in 2024. If he decides to fully commit to that and nothing happens between now and that actual campaign cycle beginning, which it will begin toward the end of 2023, what you're going to see is uh, 
Kamala Harris is going to step aside if Biden decides he is going to commit and run to it. If Biden says that he is not going to run again and he decides to endorse Kamala Harris, he decides to stay out of it, whatever, there are folks out there who are already trying to set up Kamala Harris as the natural successor, despite the fact that she has spent her time oscillating between disappearing completely and making some rather bizarre speeches with terrible word salads that don't really do much. One of the responsibilities that we know she has had as vice president is to be looking at the immigration problem at the border, a border that she has largely refused to go to, say, maybe once or twice. And uh, doing a job looking into it that nobody can really be sure she's done uh, at a press conference the other day. Uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, could not say what Kamala Harris and her team have actually done in their work on the immigration issue. But nonetheless, there are people out there who are pushing the idea that Kamala Harris is really the way to go in 2024. And they're not doing so so overtly. They're just writing pieces that talk about how great she is. There was an opinion piece of the Washington Post came out yesterday. Kamala Harris had a most excellent year. It's an opinion piece that seems to be creating a reality that is about as detached as it gets. Vice President Harris walked into her ceremonial office at the White House with a broad smile and easy confidence when we sat down for an interview on the Monday before Christmas. And why shouldn't she smile? President Biden's electoral right-hand ma'am is finishing a banner year filled with domestic barnstorming and high-wire diplomacy. Apparently, apparently, this writer believes that the overturning of the Dobbs decision and Kamala Harris going out on the campaign trail, her public stance in Ukraine, including being on the floor of, uh, of the House the other day when Zelensky spoke, and being present at a foreign conference last month, that's her banner year. I'm not making that up. That's actually what's written in the piece. To understand Harris's 2022, I suggest looking at it as a tent held up by three polls. One is the Munich Security Conference in February. Another tent poll is Harris's year as U.S. is uh, as the U.S. delegation uh, she led to the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference. The third is the most important after the leaked draft of the in May of what would become later become the Supreme Court's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision. The former California Attorney General saw plainly the implications for other rights, such as marriage equality. That's it. She went to two conferences. And Roe versus Wade got overturned. That's her stellar year, according to this writer. In another piece by Molly Jong Fast at Vanity Fair, there is an absolute fluff feature. It is the fluffiest journalism that you would probably find outside of, say, a magazine devoted to, can- to cotton candy. Sitting across from Harris had me thinking how about how I've devoted a good deal of my life analyzing how the media and Americans more generally treat powerful women. And here is the most powerful woman, quite literally one heartbeat away from the presidency. She is the first female, first black, and first South, first South Asian president, or first South Asian American vice president. But before that, she was the first female district attorney in San Francisco and first female attorney general of California. Lest we forget, those last two qualifications are why the progressives really didn't like her in 2020. She couldn't even make it to the first primary. She dropped out. 
before the first primary was held in 2020 because she had so little support. She was easily eviscerated by Tulsi Gabbard on a debate stage to the point that she could not continue her campaign into primary season. Progressives were uncomfortable with Kamala, with Kamala Harris because of her time as a prosecutor, where she locked up black men and black women for drug and truancy issues. And her office slow walked any evidence that would help those defendants. She was harsh on drug crime. She was harsh on truancy. The very things that progressive activists in the legal community want to see easing of because of cultural and racial issues. And as far as her time as vice president, like I said earlier, there's no accomplishment. She went to two conferences and she did nothing on the border like she was supposed to do. What exactly has Kamala Harris done? She came to Sunset, Louisiana, and had a very, very odd couple of lines in front of a sign that was misspelled. Her team couldn't even spell New Orleans right. I think it was New Orleans. But anyway, Kamala Harris doesn't have any accomplishments. So who are the other options for the Democrats? Pete Buttigieg? Pete Buttigieg disappeared for months on paternity leave. Nobody knew. It was never announced. Nobody knew where he was. Meanwhile, there were union strikes and other issues in transportation that nobody was taking care of because the Secretary of Transportation was gone. Gavin Newsom? Gavin Newsom has been experimenting with some very progressive policies in California, and California is currently the state that is losing the most people to out-migration. Louisiana actually gained some folks in the most recent census. California has been steadily losing people because they are trying to get the hell out of Dodge. Assuming it's a Dodge electric vehicle. There is no successor for Joe Biden. He has to run in 2024. If he doesn't, the Democrats can just kiss it goodbye. Joe Biden is the only person, and you guys might laugh at me saying this, but I'm telling you, Joe Biden is the only person right now who can unify the progressives and the moderates in the Democratic Party and keep that party together. Because the moment he's out of there and the moment the progressives really start taking over and pushing back against the moderates who really just want power and not necessarily to move the ball down the field as quickly as the progressives want, there's going to be an all out civil war like you're seeing in the Republican Party. You see more of the civil war in the Republican Party because the media and the Democrats are invested in making that the main storyline. But deep down, when you look at the Democratic Party, they're in trouble, too. They don't have an answer for a post-Joe Biden Democratic Party. Because the top three names that are getting thrown out there are the vice president, the transportation, uh, the secretary of transportation and the governor of California, none of whom have any sort of broad appeal to the American general public, much uh, to the Democratic Party, much less the American general public. See, the red wave that wasn't gave Democrats this confidence boost and allows them to think they can go ahead and double down on some things. But that's not what 2022 showed us. But they're going to think they have some sort of mandate to continue to get more progressive and to push back on some of those social issues that the voters were saying very loudly they didn't like. 
the one thing the voters did not like, the one thing the voters hated more than the far left social progressivism was apparently the people who were pushing the 2020 election conspiracy and the people that were trying to fight battles about 2020 rather than focusing on the issues of the present. The Democrats didn't win, the Republicans lost. We, you and I, have watched enough Louisiana gubernatorial elections to know what that's like. But the media is going to go with Kamala Harris. The first woman, first black, first South Asian American to be vice president. That is her resume. That's the only part of the resume they're going to focus on. Because the fact of the matter is, if you look at anything else, you see that Kamala Harris has done nothing. Kamala Harris was originally chosen because she was a black woman, but also because she was a prosecutor. And they needed somebody to be on the attack against Donald Trump and the Republicans. And she has absolutely fallen on her face. There is a report that came out, I think, yesterday or the day before, a report indicating that Biden knew early on that he'd made a mistake with Kamala Harris. And if that report is even half true, then I suspect you won't see Joe Biden stepping aside in 2024 saying, here, let Kamala take over. Joe Biden's going to want that extra four years to try to win and try to maintain the peace in the Democratic Party and secure a legacy. He's not going to give that up to Kamala Harris. Despite the rosy exterior and getting an omnibus bill passed and all of this excitement about the Republican wave not happening, this, that, and the other, the Democrats are in a very fragile state. But it's not all roses for the Republican Party either. There's a lot of infighting still going on there. When we come back, we're going to talk about that here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5, KPL 232-1542. If you want to be part of the conversation, got a few minutes left, would be glad to talk to you. all also send a message through the KPL app chat if you want to be part of the conversation. All right, so before I get to my last bit for the day, I did get a message a little bit uh, earlier uh, on the app. Um, and it's kind of an intellectual kind of discussion question. In your opinion, are we living in the early stages of 1984 or Atlas Shrugged? I do believe I see parallels in both. There certainly are elements to both books that you can uh, you can kind of see in modern society. I am, however typically skeptical of saying, you know, we're living 1984, we're living Atlas Shrugged, we're living Handmaid's Tale, uh, because the writers in those books wrote the very end of that slippery slope and a very extreme end of the slippery slope that all things can, can, can lead to. As much as people like to look around and be afraid, the fact of the matter is it is impossible 
for us to fully get to 1984 or Atlas Shrugged or Handmaid's Tale or anything like that. The systems that are in place in the country, the systems and safeguards that exist actually do prevent us from achieving those realities. And I know a lot of people are quick to say that it's very easy for the government to pass this law and that law and that statute and, and, and make this rule or, or whatever, and that'd be it. That's game over. It's not game over. Yes. Webster Dictionary is changing words, changing the meaning of words. Stanford is, is changing the meaning of words. The way the government looks down on its people, treats them as subservient rather than the people actually being the ones who give government its power. Very, very worrisome. But there is an election cycle every two years. And all of these things are absolutely preventable. The problem the problem that we have is that we have too many voters who are disengaged. I don't think we will reach those extreme ends. I don't think that we will become a fully subservient society like in 1984. I don't think the left is in any way rational when it starts making its handmade tale uh, comparisons. First of all, read a different book because that one sucks and the show sucks. And I'm sorry to anybody who likes the book or the show, but you're watching a crappy show and you're reading a crappy book. Margaret Atwood was a terrible writer. But also, I do have to admit that Ayn Rand was also a terrible writer. Tremendously boring. I liked George Orwell. I liked 1984. I loved Animal Farm. But Ayn Rand and Margaret Atwood are terrible writers. They really were. No matter what lesson you say the books give you, they were terrible writers. But we might be in the early stages of something that looks similar to 1984 or Atlas Shrugged. But we, phys- we, we can't get to those levels. We just can't. All right, y'all. Merry Christmas. It's been a thrill to be with y'all. I will be back on Tuesday here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. Email me, Joe at RedState.com, if you want to reach out over the weekend. Talk to you guys again real soon. Shannon is offsides next here on News Talk 96.5 KPL.